0: reading today, and the next subject in our program, as you know, we're working our way through the epistle to the Galatians. Um, We're still in chapter 1, and we're going to be reading from verses 11 to 24. So if you want to read with me, you might like to get to that um, ready. But we've seen over the last two weeks that the background to this letter to the churches in Galatia was a a very serious problem. In the words of chapter 5, I know that we haven't got to it yet, but I think there was probably a flavour of this in what you've heard over the last two weeks. But in the words of chapter 5, someone had cut in on them. Someone was keeping them from obeying the truth. Someone had thrown them into confusion. And someone was preaching a false gospel. A gospel which ignored the Precious commands and the Old Testament traditions of God's people. For example, this false gospel even claimed that it wasn't necessary to be circumcised. And the main troublemaker had even openly challenged Peter, one of the pillars of the early church. This troublemaker, he hadn't been around for long, um, it's, it's understood. Not many people knew him, in fact. But some said he'd actually been a student of the apostles and somehow had gone rogue. And, and that would make sense because apparently, before then, he'd been a Pharisee and he'd rebelled there also. People like this were a danger to the early church. And if you were a Christian in one of the Galatian churches, that may have been the kind of rumour that you'd heard. And now Paul this so-called troublemaker uh, had written them a letter to put the record straight, setting out the background to the gospel that he taught and why they should trust his message. Before we go any further, let's just pause and ask ourselves why we care about this. I mean, it sounds like a good story You know, people going rogue and things like that. It's the kind of stuff that they make into movies, isn't it? But we should never read the Bible like it's just some sort of ancient novel where we follow the characters and analyse their actions and judge their motives and so on like we were just studying a book for English literature. This letter has been preserved for us because God wants us to know something of great importance for our, our own lives today. And I think the first thing that we need to take away from this over the next few weeks is an assurance about the integrity of the gospel that Paul preached. Because let's face it, the letters of Paul to the early churches make up a large part of our New Testaments. So if his doctrine was wrong, then that undermines a lot of what we believe in, doesn't it? And actually, there are are many critics of Paul, even today. Even scholars who claim that he was just a second-rate apostle who distorted the true gospel. So we're going to look at what Paul says about his credentials. The other thing I'd like to look at um, is what Paul says about his own calling and his commission. Uh, Why? Because they're part of his credentials, But also, you and I have a calling and a commission, don't we? Yes? Maybe? Well, hopefully, um, in the way God chose Paul, we'll find some encouragement for our own areas of service. So let's start with the passage. I'm just going to read the first two verses to... um, to introduce the passage but Paul actually packs a lot into these first two verses verse 11 and 12 he writes I want you to know brothers and sisters that the gospel I preached is not of human origin I did not receive it from any man nor was I taught it rather I received it by revelation From Jesus Christ. Make no mistake, these challenges to the authority of Paul were very serious indeed. Not because there was a risk of Paul losing his job, so to speak, um, but because they were an attack on the very gospel that Paul preached. The gospel that does not require us to convert to Judaism. And he starts with an uncompromising statement, which he introduces with the words, I want you to know. I want you to know this. This is not Paul's thought for the week. This is not Paul just sharing a different perspective that he'd like them to think about. This is not Paul just giving them another idea that he'd like them to take on board. He wants them to know something which is vitally important. It's a bit like the way Jesus introduced some of his most profound statements when he said, I tell you the truth. Jesus always told the truth, but sometimes he would introduce something with that statement because he really wanted them to pay attention and understand there was something very important coming. And I think Paul's doing the same here. I want you to know. And then he goes on to talk about four things. He gives them four things. Which basically add up to the same thing. He says, firstly, that the gospel that he preached was not of human origin. So he didn't make it up himself. Secondly, he didn't get it from any man, which obviously he couldn't have done if he didn't, if it wasn't of human origin. Thirdly, he says he wasn't taught it. And I think that's probably a reference to what's thought to be accusations which were going around, that Paul got his gospel from the other apostles and then twisted it. So he says he wasn't taught it. And of course, he couldn't have been taught it if the other two statements are true, that he, it wasn't of human origin and, and he didn't get it from, from any man. So if it wasn't of human origin, where did he get it? His fourth statement is kind of the conclusion of the other three. He says that he received it by revelation from Jesus Christ. Now that was a big claim, wasn't it? And no doubt Paul knew that there would be many who quite simply would just not believe him. So he goes on to give them supporting evidence to convince them that he is speaking the truth. And I think the evidence falls into two categories. Firstly, what we're going to look at this week is the evidence for what he uh, had just said. And secondly, he goes on to explain some things which had happened in Jerusalem and at Antioch, which I think his enemies were using to try and undermine him. Um, I'm not going to comment on, on, on those this week because that, that will be part of what we look at over the next couple of weeks. So, evidence in two categories. Why should we believe Paul when he says his gospel is the true gospel? And by the way, that is how Paul described the gospel that he preached um, Romans 2 and 16 and other verses, he calls it my gospel. But that was only to differentiate it from the false gospel that was that was going around. He wasn't differentiating it from the gospel that the other apostles uh, were teaching and those who were repeating the apostles' teaching, but he was, he did want to differentiate it from the false gospel. And his main assertion here, of course, is that his gospel wasn't his gospel at all. He's saying that he got his gospel directly. From the Lord Jesus. Now, I suppose, just as an aside, I should say that there is a little bit of uncertainty about exactly what Paul meant when he said he received his gospel by revelation from Jesus Christ. Uh, some think that Paul received divine revelation in detail of the same gospel that the Lord Jesus taught his disciples. And some think that it was the revelation of the true identity of Jesus that showed Paul that the gospel that he'd already heard about, and and he must have already heard at least some of the gospel, because that was the gospel he was trying to destroy. You remember, he was trying to wipe out Christianity, so he'll have researched um, the gospel to some degree. So some think it was the revelation of the true identity of the Lord Jesus that showed him the gospel that he'd already heard about, that it was in fact, in fact true. Personally, I think it's both. Uh, That he did know the basics of the gospel, but when uh, Jesus revealed himself to Paul, the Holy Spirit then started to open up to him the mysteries hidden in the Old Testament scriptures, scriptures that Paul knew, he thought, so very well, and the Holy Spirit started to reveal to him um, the gospel in a lot more depth but let's get back to his credentials why believe paul he points to four things his conversion his calling his commission and the independence of his revelation i couldn't think of another word beginning with c for for independence believe me i won't tell you how long i tried to think of another word beginning with c but his conversion his calling his commission And his independence. Okay, so let's read the rest of the passage beginning with verse 13. If you have heard of my previous way of life in Judaism, how intensely I persecuted the church of God and tried to destroy it. I was advancing in Judaism beyond many of my own age among my people and was extremely zealous for the traditions of my fathers. But when God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by his grace, was pleased to reveal his son in me so that I might preach him among the Gentiles, my immediate response was not to consult any human being. I did not go up to Jerusalem to see those who were apostles before I was, but I went into Arabia. Later, I returned to Damascus. Then, after three years, I went up to Jerusalem to get acquainted with Cephas and stayed with him 15 days. I saw none of the other apostles, only James, the Lord's brother. I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. Then I went to Syria and Cilicia. I was personally unknown to the churches of Judea that are in Christ. They only heard the report the man who formerly persecuted us is now preaching the faith he once tried to destroy and they praise God because of me. Okay, so four things. Let's look at them each in turn. In his conversion, Paul had experienced the most dramatic change of life, hadn't he? A change of life and a change of perspective. He'd gone gone from someone trying to destroy the church to someone trying to protect it. He'd gone from someone completely devoted to Judaism to someone completely devoted to Christianity. He'd gone from someone likely to become one of the most senior and influential Pharisees of his time to someone who was willing to give it all up for the sake of following Christ. His career... Meant nothing to him once he had his encounter with the Lord Jesus. His argument here is clear, isn't it? Without even talking about the dramatic experience that he had on the road to Damascus. He doesn't even even go into that. He just focuses on the change of life. And he's saying that he'd experienced such a dramatic conversion, such A clear change of life that it can only be explained by divine intervention. Incidentally, we uh, think Stuart was referring to the evidence to do with the resurrection um, this morning. Um, You know, we often say that one of the most powerful evidences for the truth of the resurrection is the changed lives of. His disciples who went from cowardly people who hid themselves away and all run away from the Lord to people who were willing to go out with boldness and courage and, and tell everyone about Jesus. Change lives is one of the most powerful demonstrations of the truth of the gospel. And I'm sure, of course, that should be true of any conversion, shouldn't it? It should be true of our conversion. We might not have had such a dramatic initial salvation experience as the Apostle Paul, But there should be a clear difference now between us and those in the world around us. In our um, outlook, our priorities, our relationships, uh, the things that we do and how we do them. Yes, of course there will be similarities. Um, We live in a world where there are so many lovely, loving people who do good works in their communities and further afield that would put many a Christian to shame. But we know that good works don't earn ourselves a place in heaven. And uh, my point is that the combined outlook and priorities and relationships and the things that we do and how we do them, uh, that combination of aspects of our lives, should clearly mark us out as Christians, shouldn't it? And it's powerful evidence to those who we come into contact with. So, conversion, number one. Number two, he talks about his calling. I think his point here is that although his conversion was dramatic, apart from the bright (laughs) light and the voice from heaven, um, it wasn't really out of step with the way God works. Paul's calling was simply a demonstration of the sovereignty and the grace of God, just like when he called you and me. He says in verse 15 that God chose him before he was even born. That's the sovereignty of God. And he says that um, he he called Paul out of his grace. Paul didn't see his calling as some sort of a a reward for his devotion to the Old Testament law and everything that he'd done in his career as a Pharisee. In fact, Paul was amazed at the grace of God that he should be allowed to have any job in the church, given that he'd tried so hard to destroy the church. And another dimension of God's grace is that you notice he says that he was pleased. He was pleased. When God, who set me apart from my mother's womb and called me by His grace, was pleased to reveal His Son in me. It wasn't a reluctant choice. God didn't look at Paul and say, You can see a a, a whole load of background and useful knowledge of the scriptures and good influencing skills, and thought to himself, Well, you know, I can use him. I'd rather not. Uh, God's grace is never expressed or delivered reluctantly, he was pleased to show his grace to Paul. He is pleased to show his grace to all of us who don't deserve it. He delights to give us what we don't deserve. And so with that in mind, it's good to remind ourselves that we've all been called, haven't we? We were chosen in Christ before the world began, Ephesians 1 and 4 tells us. And he has called each of us personally. He calls us by name John 10 verse 3 says. Now we'll come on to the purpose of that calling in a moment. But as far as salvation is concerned, isn't it great to know, in the words of the Lord's parable about the lost sheep, that if you or I had been the only, I remember being told this in Sunday school, it had a big effect on me then, even as as a kid. If you or I had been the only lost sheep, the Lord Jesus would still have come and searched for us and called for us individually. According he calls the, us by name. On is a by the that happened to Steve last week as well, didn't it? You know, to Steve was doing something in his computer Bible during the ministry and it started talking to him. So, um, where were we? The Lord... Calls each one of us by name. So conversion, calling. Third thing, Paul then talked about his special commission um, in verse sixteen to preach the gospel of Jesus to the Gentiles, to the non-Jews. I think here, remember, Paul's making an argument here. He's trying, he's being persuasive. So you're going to say, well, what's his point here about talking about his his um, his his um, commission to go to the Gentiles. And I think the point that he's, he's trying to make is he's trying to show that God's purposes with the Gentiles wasn't a new thing. It wasn't something that he had just made up. It wasn't part of the Paul twist on the Gospel. It's something that was always in God's purposes. And therefore, by showing that the Gentiles always had a special place in God's purposes, it undermined the false teaching that Christianity was just the natural evolution of Judaism. And anyone who wanted to be a Christian had to also take on board the rest of the, um, the Jewish um, faith. How does Paul make this, this, this note? It's very subtle, and I might be wrong. But in verse 15, you notice that Paul uses quite flowery language to say that he'd been chosen before he was born. He says that he had been set apart from his mother's womb. Is that just coincidence that he uses that, that nice flowery language? Or was he, I wonder, deliberately quoting God's call to Jeremiah? Because in Jeremiah 1 and 5, God used the same language when he called Jeremiah. And Jeremiah was told in his commission that he would be a prophet to the nations, not just the Jews. So, whether Paul was using that or not, I'm, don't, I'm not entirely sure. Uh, nothing changes the fact that that was. Um, Paul's, um, that was Jeremiah's commission, and of course we see it throughout the Old Testament in other places, that God's purposes were never limited only to the Jews, they always extended to the Gentiles, the non-Jews as well. So, just thinking about ourselves again for a moment, we each have a commission, don't we? Each one of us, it might not be a commission like Paul, um, but we all have a commission and we often talk about calling and commission um putting them together and and, and rightly so because the verse i quoted from ephesians 1 before uh, makes it clear that we were chosen for a purpose and likewise ephesians 2 and 10 says that there were there are good works which god has prepared in advance for us to do the great commission of matthew 28 Uh, We often refer to that, don't we? And it gives us a very high-level view of the work of the church. But each of us are called to make our own contribution. Each of us have our own commission to serve within the church according to the gift and opportunity that God has given us. Now, sometimes, like Paul, there might be a very specific sense of commission to do a very specific thing, either locally or even um, overseas. But for most of us, I think our calling and commission will probably be more general, albeit no less important. God expects us to contribute to the vital functions of the church. He expects us to share the gospel with others as in our day-to-day lives as we, have off- as we have opportunity to do so. He expects us to live lives worthy of our calling, it says in Second Thessalonians 1 and 11. And of course. He expects us to love and support one another, and so on. So all of these things, we might just think, well, these are just the things, uh, the standards, aren't they, of behaviour. No, I think they're more than that. God brings us together to serve one another. We all have a a commission to serve God and serve our brothers and sisters, and to share the gospel with our friends and neighbours, work colleagues, and, and, and so on. That's our commission. It might not be quite the same as... As Paul um, but it's a vital commission nonetheless so conversion calling commitment the fourth thing um, the fourth point that Paul was making for his argument is simply to refute the idea that he had just been a student of the other apostles uh, that he was somehow under them and therefore had no apostolic authority of his own uh, and he says that after his conversion, he didn't, even, he didn't go to them at all. Um, he didn't really have any meaningful contact with the other apostles for many years. Um, instead, he went on what we might call today a retreat. Um, and I imagine that while he was away, he came to terms with how wrong he had been about everything uh how wrong he had been about his understanding of the scriptures i imagine he spent a long time revisiting all of those old testament scriptures that he thought that he knew so well and with the help of the holy spirit he was able to see what jesus showed those two disciples on the road to Emmaus. that other amazing roadside experience uh, to see how all the old testament scriptures all pointed to jesus Paul didn't receive a different revelation to the other apostles. He independently received the same revelation. And I think that's one of the hallmarks of God's revelation. He doesn't reveal... There's only one truth. He doesn't reveal one thing to one group of people and then reveal something else to another group of people. Sure, in the whole Christian world, there are people who believe and do different things. But that is about people's response to the revelation. It's not a different revelation. God reveals one revelation to the world, and that is what we called what we call the, the full um, gospel. And we can see the evidence of Paul's revelation being the same as what the apostles received, because when he finally presented his gospel to the other apostles, um, they recognized the truth of his preaching. They recognized it was the same gospel that they taught. Um, They recognised the the authenticity of his calling. They recognised the validity of his commission. Now, we haven't looked at that yet. These are the things we're going to be looking at um, over the next couple of weeks. So that's just a little bit of an appetite wetter. So, four key areas we've looked at briefly, uh, all of which prove Paul's integrity, I think. His conversion, his calling, his commission, and the independence of his Revelation. And you know, this wasn't the only time that Paul felt the need that he had to do this. Um, 2 Corinthians chapters 11 and 12, or Philippians chapter 3, for example, if you want to have a look at those um, passages, you'll see Paul having to set out his credentials um, to other churches as well. And I think it's an indication of the strength of opposition against him. And the oath that he gives in verse 20. You notice know, in verse 20 where he says, I assure you before God that what I am writing to you is no lie. He's, he's making an oath there, isn't he? And I think that's an indication of what was being said about him. This is no lie because people were saying that he was a liar. And, you know, I mean, you, you hear some things said about, about, about speakers sometimes. You know, he's not, he's, he's not too good or he's a bit dull or whatever. But to call someone a liar, I mean, that's about as strong as it gets, isn't it? And that's what people were saying about Paul. Um, but he refutes that with an oath, I think, to convey how important it was that the, that the, that the, 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 the Christians knew that that absolutely wasn't, wasn't true. Of course, Paul didn't like to boast about his qualifications. Um, but he saw a need to defend his integrity as... The preacher, in order to defend the integrity of the gospel that he preached, and today the integrity of the gospel and those who preach the gospel is still under attack, isn't it? And we know that such opposition is to be expected, it's part of the trouble that Jesus warned his disciples about in this world you will have trouble, they hated me, they will hate you too. So we know it's not unusual in that respect. We also know that it's part of Um, Our struggle against the powers of darkness that we read about in verses such as uh, Ephesians 6 and 12. But sometimes it's because Christians bring it on themselves by not living worthily of our calling. And that's the challenge. It was good to try and leave a challenge, something for us to think about, all of us. Uh, The challenge I'd like to leave with us all today If we had to set out our own credentials, our understanding of the gospel and the things that we have done since we became Christians and and the things that we're doing now in the present, would our lives stand up to scrutiny? Would they support or undermine the truth of the gospel that we say that we believe in? Or as I remember it it being um, put once... Um, again, this might be way back in Sunday school days, but I remember somebody saying, you know, if you were arrested for being a Christian, and by the way, as you know, in many countries of the world, that is a, you know, a risk that Christians do face. But if you or I were arrested for being a Christian, would there be enough evidence to convict us? Paul, in his letter to the Colossians, was saying, in a sense, I hope so. Here's my credentials the backup. The truth of the message i preach may god help us in our day-to-day lives to show the power of the gospel and the truth of the gospel in the things that we do and say Uh, the standard of behavior that we we bring our faithfulness to the things of the church these are the things that show that god really is working in our lives let's pray